Welcome back to the Balance Bully Podcast for ambitious women in business and a few brave men. I'm your host, Nikita Rinthigpen. Always excited to be in the space with you today. Listen, I am taking the deepest and biggest breath I can because what is coming up next for you? I know normally I'm totally cool with you guys, like being on the Peloton treadmill, taking the dog for a walk, whatever you're doing while you're multitasking. And it's cool if you have to do that this time. And in parentheses, you're going to want to put this on replay. You're going to want to listen to this again when you are sitting down somewhere in a quiet space with a notebook to just allow whatever download comes into your heart to pour out onto that page so you do not forget it. This is absolutely an episode that you do not want to be booked and busy and multitasking for, I promise you. Today, we are bringing you two extremely intelligent, I must say, for the logical cerebral part of my brain, and heart-centered beast of women that are doing the work. That is the best way that I can say that right now. They are on the forefront, making changes, being a change agent in their own individual and collaboratively respectable ways, and they're having the tough conversations about race. And guess what? It's not for you, people of color that are out here. It's for white people. Because we have those conversations all the time to the point of exhaustion. They are talking to the people from themselves, because they are also white people (laughs) that are having these difficult conversations to say, listen, we got to do something different. This isn't a point the finger, blame you. Let's just be angry or hide or be stuck in guilt. This is a, we have an opportunity to take our privilege that we do not have to apologize for and leverage it and use it in a powerful and potent way. And they are out here. Do you hear me guys? Out here having these conversations, and they even put it in a powerful book. I could go on and on and on in the description of their very long bios with all the academic credentialing and all the wonderful awards and all the things that they've done, but I don't think I would do as much justice as allowing each beautiful, potent human, and I'm very specific about that for so many reasons. If you've been following the BBP, you know I'm very serious about my words, I want each of them to take a moment and tell you what's pulling them forth in the world and why their work means so much before we get behind the curtains and talk about girl stuff and all the things that happen because it's powerful. First up, I would love Dr. Ali Michael to introduce herself in terms of what's pulling her forth because your credentials are crazy long. You don't even have to do that. They will read that in the show notes. But what has you doing the work and why now is the greatest question I can gift you today. Mm, Thanks, Nikita. It's so good to be here with you. And um, there's two big things that are pulling me forward. I didn't grow up talking about race or racism. I grew up as a white person. I grew up as a white person in the suburbs of Pittsburgh colorblind, taught to be colorblind, taught that race has nothing to do with me, that that, um, not given any skills for talking about race, for recognizing and confronting racist jokes, Mm -hmm. nothing. Like it was like pretty much the conversation was absent. Mm 
Yeah. And um, it wasn't until I got to college that I realized there's a skill here that I'm missing. I don't know how to do this. And actually, I want to know because mm-hmm. racism is something that impacts the people I'm sitting in a classroom with who have a different racial background from me. And I can't even understand it. I can hardly even listen to them talk about it because I get so tangled up in my own uh, emotional reaction to it. And at the minute somebody says white, I think, are you talking about me? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I start to panic and I, I want to be in this conversation. I want to do something about it. And I can't do that unless I unlearn some of that early socialization. But the other thing that, I mean, so this is like a lifelong journey for me that, Mm -hmm. you know, starting in college, I realized there's a lot I don't know that I want to know. Um, but the thing that really continues to pull me forward is a deep relationship I have with a woman in South Africa. She's a black South African feminist activist. Her name's Gertrude Squintu. Mm -hmm. And I met her when I was in college, I was studying abroad at the university of Cape town and I lived with her family and she asked me to write her life story. So that ended up being my senior thesis in college where I just listened to her for over a hundred hours and transcribed all of her stories from her life. And it was in that process of getting to know Gertrude and realizing what apartheid did to black South Africans and particularly to this person who was my friend, um, where I started to realize how dangerous and how um, violent state sponsored racial segregation and racism is. And I think there was a way I could see it, more easily because it was a South African context. So I wasn't as implicated as an American, Mm -hmm. but slowly after being very self-righteous and very angry at white South Africans, I started to realize, wait a second, Mm -hmm. in my country, I'm the white one. Mm -hmm. And in my country, we also say things like, can't we just get over this? Isn't this in the past? Can't we all just treat each other equally and move forward? Which is exactly what they were saying in South Africa in 1998, which was like four years after apartheid ended. And I was like, you know, I was outraged by it, but I didn't see how the same thing was happening in the U S and, um, that ongoing friendship with Gertrude, honestly, which continues till today is one of the things that pulls me forward and motivates me every day because I, I, I just see how damaging racism is to a whole society because of the ways in which it limits the participation of huge groups of people. And it dehumanizes the people that it, you know, ostensibly holds up. I mean, racism benefits white people in all kinds of material ways, but it dehumanizes us too. And, um, and so those are some of the things that keep me motivated to continue this, this work, this practice. Oh, listen, <laughs> that's a whole like podcast series in everything that you just said. That's powerful. And thank you. Cause I felt that from your heart versus a right, you know, well curated statement that we're all trained to do. Right. So thank you for that. Dr. Eleonora Bartoli, please share with us what is also pulling you forth and what brought you two with Dr. Michael together? Oh, I'm going to let Ali share that story, if that's okay, of how we got together. But I'll share my journey because she tells the story in such a beautiful yeah. way. Um, I was born and raised in Italy. I came to the United States when I was 19. Mm-hmm. And 
I was socialized in a lot of biases, but racism or ethnicism manifested quite differently in Italy than it manifests in the United States. And so I didn't have all the PC lingo or any lingo for that matter to understand what was going on around me. What I did have was my own experience of being other in some senses in Italy. And what I realized that I was being socialized in my own emotional reactions. I remember the first time I had some level of racial guilt or racial um, discomfort. And I thought, oh, I'm fully socialized into American culture now. (laughs) And what really struck me are two things as I was trying to navigate just functioning in the United States. So I came in without even learning, you know, knowing English. So it was a lot of language learning in the meantime and making a lot of faux pas and responding honestly when people asked me how I was doing, you know, making hand gestures that did not exist in the United States and were not appreciated. So, you know, it took me a while to sort of navigate my world. Um, and I realized there were two things. You know, I'm a quick, first of all, I don't mind asking questions. I'm an outspoken person. I don't mind putting the foot in my mouth. We are used to doing that in Italy. It's allowed. <laughs> so I have a certain freedom um, around that. And I uh, say always, I'm one of those strange people that really loves people. And so I really love being in connection. You know, I love leaning in and getting to know folks. And I could tell that there was one place specifically where I was absolutely not expected to lean in was any kind of interracial conversations or interracial relationships. I was not accepted to, uh, expected to understand much about it or to even be able to learn about it. And I said, well, I'm learning about everything. What's so special about race that I can learn about how to navigate these relationships? And it transpired everywhere, my personal life um, and also my professional life. I remember one time I was in a training program. I'm a psychologist by training, and we have to do a number of externships, as they were calling part-time sort of training, and then we do full-time training. In one of the part-time training, I was in a hospital um, that was in Chicago, and I noticed that all the inpatient uh, patients, their clients, and some of the lower ranking staff or African-American or people of mm-hmm. color and all the higher ranking staff and all the psychiatrists, psychology were all white. So I thought, well, that's interesting. So I went and asked my supervisor, you know, I'm noticing this. I'm just wondering what the significance of that is. Yeah. And he promptly responded, well, you must be racist for even noticing it. So you clearly have a problem for asking the question. Now, he had been overly sexist to me already, so I wasn't really taking his answer <laughs> at face value thankfully. at that point. Um, <laughs> thankfully, right? But I could tell yet again that I just kept putting the the foot in my mouth in a way around race, in a way that was radically different um, than it was about other topics. And the other thing that was striking to me is that I started having the same reactions internally that other people had to me when I was sort of other in a different context. Oh, you're being oversensitive or, Oh, you just know they didn't mean it that way. And, and I found myself little by little wanting to say those same words to racial conflict or interactions. And I thought, I've heard that before. Where does that come from? And so finally, during my internship year, which is a full-time um, a training year before you sort of graduate and then move on, 
I uh, listen, I was watching a great documentary, The Color of Fear by Lin-Manuel Wise, a filmmaker. It's, it, it was filmed in the 90s. It's applicable today as anything. Do anybody has any questions about race, you should watch it. So I watched it, and there was this guy, David, who was an older white man, and he was basically verbalizing all the kind of misconceptions, questions that I had. And I could tell he was saying all the wrong things. You know, he was the one in the uh, documentary who was supposed to sort of be the, the target of trying to make him learn. And on the one hand, I could tell that he just didn't get yeah. it. And I had all the same questions. I was literally, you know, um, pending by his lips to try to figure out, okay, so what's the answer? So what's the answer? I remember that day so clearly. And he it helped me make sense of so much of my own life in a very different context, of course. And it made so much sense about what was blocking a real deep connection with the folks around me. Now I'm a psychologist. I'm in the business of connection. Right. I'm in the business of change. I'm in the business of um, becoming vulnerable with each other and, and growing with each other and finding healing and finding authenticity and finding truth in life. And so I really pretty much didn't look back since that day. Yeah. And I made it my whole career. But for very personal reasons. I'll say one more thing. I saw, you know, I'm going very long, but um, one more thing that I would say, it, it, this, this journey is so personal for us, and I will let Ali talk about our journey together, that when my daughter was born, my mom came from Italy for about eight months to help us out wow. and to stay with us and to take care or help us take care of her as we were both working, me and my partner. And I remember at the beginning, it was recently, recent, early in our sort of anti-racist work together with Ali and I said to her mom I don't think this is any time of course I said mom I you can't raise Sophia my daughter without having an understanding of racism because you're gonna have to socialize help me socialize a white child in an anti-racist way and so we had just taken this series of workshops called whites confronting racism offered by training for change in Philadelphia and so I promptly sent my at that point 60 plus year old mom uh, to a workshop and gave a whole bunch of books to read so that she could help me. Now, of course, Sophia was very little, was just months old, but I knew that I couldn't be on this journey without her and and everybody that was around me had to be on this journey for me to be able to live my life fully the way I wanted to live it. Mm, mm, mm. You guys are... <laughs> to not take away from everything that you dropped because there's so many layers. It's like a big, huge, sweet Vidalia onion for both of you <laughs> with everything that you said from knowing that you have to have people in your ecosystem around you to support you, to keep you accountable to doing what you're doing, like all, all of those things to being able to listen to someone else's story for a hundred plus hours with compassion and no judgment. And when the judgment comes up to be able to hold yourself to that to a point that you can establish a long relationship with this person who shared all her secrets with you, which in and of itself, you know, could create so many other spirals of ne negativity if you were to have chosen that path instead of choosing, pun intended with your book title here, but recognizing that it's our problem, our path, and being able to be a representative of that change that you wanted to see in the world. Oh my God. Okay. Let me be quiet. So, Dr. Would you prefer Dr. Ali or Dr. Michael? Ali, just Ali. Ali, okay. Ali, how did you guys come together? 
So we met at a conference in New York City at a time when both of us had, I mean, it was a conference on, it's the Winter Roundtable on Race and, and Counseling Psychology. We'd both been studying race and racism for a number of years at that point. You know, I was, I don't know, three or four years out of college and, and trying, um, still trying to really like build racial competency and still having all of these barriers that came from my own early socialization. So still wanting to say things publicly and stopping myself because I didn't know the right words or am I going to be offensive? And so I'm in this workshop with uh, a white presenter, Elizabeth Denevi, who was saying, you know, white people can work with other white people to build racial competency. You don't always have to be with people of color. People of color write books and make movies and you can listen to the voices of people of color without being a drain on the person who lives next door or the person who's in the next cubicle over and, you know, teach me about racism. Right. And, um, so meanwhile, there's this woman in the workshop, Eleonora, who I've never seen before, but she keeps asking all these questions and she's loud and she's got like, she's got questions that I have too, but I wouldn't ever ask because I'd be embarrassed that it shows I'm ignorant or whatever, you know? And she's just like, yeah, but okay. And yeah. And so she keeps like, and I've been watching her throughout a lot of different workshops at this conference. I'm like, wow, she's kind of amazing. And then she turns to me after this workshop and she's like, Allie, want to start a white anti-racist learning group? And I'm like, yes, with you. Yes. So the, sign, so me up. <laughs> sign me up. So, the, so, and, and she, we had never seen each other before, mm -hmm. but we started this group with my partner, my sister, who was my, who was our roommate at the time and her partner. So the five of us, uh, Eleanor and Philly, we're in New York. We, we meet once a month and we spend a whole weekend together and we read books about racism and we practice, we role play, we talk, we spend hours processing this, um, whatever it is we're reading together and then practicing, asking the stupid questions and practicing answering and responding. And, you know, I, I went on to do a PhD in, in, um, whiteness and mm -hmm. education. And I would say like, most of the books that I used for my dissertation work are books we read in that group. Wow. Most of the skills I used in, when I was teaching graduate level students were not, they were not skills that I learned in graduate school. Mm -hmm. They were skills that I honed in that book. And I was laughing when Eleonora said that um, she realized that they weren't going to teach her these things in graduate school. And I thought it's because people don't know them. We have very specific ways we talk about race and racism in school, even schools of education. And they are not, they are not oriented around the lived experiences of people. We have very sterile, um, often, often, you know, uh, conversations that are rooted in particular, um, so like we'll have a, just the sociology conversation about race Come on. or just the psychology conversation. And we're not able to marry all of it together and say, yes, race is a social construction. And when my heart rate goes up because my, my student, my black student asked me a question and it puts me on the spot and suddenly I'm experiencing all this racial stress. That's, that's like a very real phenomenon in psychology that there are tools to address. But most people, I think, who are educating counselors and mm -hmm. teachers don't have these skills, don't know how to navigate racial stress. The one exception is Dr. Howard Stevenson, who's our mentor, um, who really helped us 
who really helped us learn that this, not only is this a skill, it's a skill anybody can learn. Yeah. It's not just people of color who, and native people who have, who can develop this skill. Anybody can learn this skill. Yeah. If you're open to learning if it. You're open. And if you practice, open. you have to yeah. practice. Yeah. But, it, but I used to think white people couldn't learn it. Like there was, it was like something about being white that made you <laughs> unable to navigate racial stress mm-hmm. or like build racial competence and mm-hmm. white people can learn it, but someone has to be, we have to be able to teach each other this thing. And, and, and that's, um, that's kind of what this book is about for us is like helping people figure out the step-by-step process of really building white people, building racial competency. Yeah. I, I appreciate everything that you said. And as you were giving different examples from your college collegiate experience and your internship or residency that you were doing at the time, I want to be clear because Ali said Ali, but Eleonora, would you like Eleonora, Dr. Eleonora or Dr. Bertoli? Oh, Eleonora, I would love that. Thank you. (laughs) I always want to be really mindful. Um, And I was listening to you talk about your practicum experience and your internship in the last years. And I could relate to all of the things personally. I am typically either the only woman or the only person of color in almost every room all the time. For all of my experiences, I did a triple degree at Drexel University in psychology, sociology, anthropology, same. The, and especially as you get into the higher years of your degree, like you, there might've been more people of color when we started. And then um, the dispensation, I think I'm messing up that word, of people teetering off. Most people think, oh, well, that's just because black people don't want to stay in college. I'm like, no. The system is set up to get you in and to help you with all your funding for freshman year because they get welfare from like corporate welfare to be able to offer all of these, all this financial aid and all these things from private funding through the school that isn't offered in your sophomore, junior, if Drexel has five-year programs, pre-junior, junior, senior years, and so on and so forth, which were quick lessons for me as a young Black woman who was also a young mother and young wife in those experiences. And I was able to see when people would ask like, well, well, why did you, you didn't become a statistic. Like, why didn't you do it? And then, you know, Burmar and Walden and so on and so on and all the things I'm like, listen, it has nothing to do with me being better than my inner resilience was one thing. Me having a village around me was another. So I heard that very clearly when you talked about it. And in every single classroom, I can't think of one. And I had some really good professors that knew their stuff when it came to their stuff, whatever their stuff was. But every single classroom and every single degree and every single certification down to taking my boards for for all of it, there was always someone who looked at you like you were crazy. And you also had to be the unicorn because why are you in this room? That in and of itself was enough pressure beyond the questions that would come out of, and I mean this in the 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 Webster Oxford definition of ignorant, not in a rude way. They didn't know, and they would ask questions that would put me in a position to have to stand up and be the representative for all Black people, which I'm like... 18, 19, 21, 20, you know, like I'm trying to figure out life. I'm trying to make sure I don't mess up this marriage. I don't mess up these kids that I had early. Like I'm trying to like balance all the things and then going to school where it's supposed to be a safe place where these educators are supposed to know more than you, to pour into you, to be open to also learning from you are 
putting such an expectation on you and shutting you down when they get uncomfortable to your example of somebody said something to them that made them uncomfortable. One of the things that came up, because I know you guys talk a lot about black people and and Native Americans, there was a, uh, I don't know, it was probably my second year at Bryn Mawr for my clinical track for grad school. And I remember a woman who was Native American. She looked Caucasian. You wouldn't have known it if she didn't tell you. She said, and of course, I'm the only black person in the room. And she's the other minority in the room now that she identified herself. She said, I don't understand why black people just can't get it together like we did because we banded together and got, um, you know, our reservations and where we have some funding and we have like our own private places to live. And there was the only way that I can describe the fury that came up in my body. And I'm a really verbal person. I'm sure you guys are figuring it out by now. I am definitely doc like Eleonora, like, Hey, I got something to say. Like, let me say, like, I'm usually that person in that moment. Cause I didn't realize how much it impacted me until this moment when I had so much fury and my heart rate was bursting out of my chest because of all the things that I wanted to say. And I quelled myself because I knew I was going to look like the angry black girl, no matter what I said. It wasn't going to come out even in honesty, in pure form, even though she asked me a direct question when no one was telling her. It wasn't a group program. Like There was no reason for her to ask me this question or it wasn't even really a part of what we were talking about. She kind of just blurted it in this particular class. And I had so much fury that raised up and I my um, my natural reaction is to fight. You know, growing up in Philly, right? You know, it's fights. Not too much flight in Philly. It's a lot of fighting. (laughs) Maybe a little freezing, but a lot lot of fighting. My natural reaction, and then I quelled because I said, you cannot give them this. You cannot give them this. So I just looked at her and I said, you know, it's a really good question. I don't have the answer for you. Because I wanted to like grab her by the neck. Like, how dare you compare? Like, there's no comparison pain. Like we shouldn't compare or compete with each other's pain or our suffering and our traumas and all the things that are genetic and in our DNA and ancestral. Like there's no comparison in any way, shape or form. And that moment, her ignorance was so huge, but she was covered by the fact that no one else wanted to challenge her because she was the other minority in the room. And they were looking to me, including the professor was looking to me to do it. And I was like, if I do it, it's going to be like a protest on Bryn Mawr's campus. Like it's going to be a whole thing. So I just need to be mindful of my trigger, see it as a gift to let me know that I need to do some work so that I can have these powerful conversations when needed and not be so angry and so hurt because that's really what it was, that it keeps me from being able to speak when other people can't. So just the fact that both of your your stories intertwine so beautifully and completely non-purposefully, right? Like you had individual tracks in your life, but it resonated with me and I've never met you before this day. That was amazing. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, those are such powerful and tender moments. Um, I work with a wonderful psychologist, uh, Jade Logan, sometimes she's at Justin Hill College here in Philly. And we talk about having the racial conversation from someone who has a white identity, somebody who's a person of color. And really we try to give 
folks, uh, students in this case, an understanding of see what each one of us brings in. So Ali mentioned some of the things that we bring in as white people. Yeah. And there's all the stuff that happened way before we entered the classroom that we bring in the conversation. And that's sort of what you're saying. So you brought so much into it and that was not engaged, not respected, not welcome, not given space. Yeah. So your work is yeah. so needed. Both of you. It's, I can't express especially now as an entrepreneur, a woman entrepreneur that's walking into a lot of rooms where I still don't see me. I still don't see people. And I'm holding the door like, come on, y'all, let's go. But it's, you know, it's exhausting um, for other people because there's a lot of self-work, a lot of personal development. I completely see why the psychology needs to be there, why the trauma specialist needs to be there. Like I see in addition to the history and the information and the understanding um, of how each community is different, you know, you speak one way in Philly, you do not speak that way in New York, right? Like there's just like different contexts, like how you said, Eleonora, like I came from Italy, like I'm able to put my foot in my mouth and it's, it's not shamed. You know, people are like, okay, that was a thing moving on and go. But here, one thing you say will absolutely be the brand for you and your family and every household attached to that address will now be under that because of the thing you say, if you're not mindful and knowing that a lot of people have to have spaciousness to do this work so they can create new villages. And the fact that you guys are out on the forefront taking the hard hits, because I know you have a lot of people in your ethnic and racial circles that do not agree and probably challenge you some verbally and maybe some in a social outcasting way. I, you don't even have to tell me. I already know that that's what's happening. And I applaud you for both taking the charge regardless of the consequence. It's powerful. I appreciate that. And one of the things I really appreciate about Eleonora is that she is so bold and so able to say, I mean, I think because Eleonora, you come from this other context. I mean, even though you came a long time ago, you've been here longer than you lived in Italy, but, but you, um, you, you know, I'll sometimes I'll say, well, can we say this? Cause we're really, we're really trying to challenge the way we have this conversation about racism. Mm -hmm in the US. We're really trying to shift it from individual level blame to systemic level, you know, like to, to take the point finger that we point at each other and point it at the system and say, what did the system do to us? This system dehumanizes us and it teaches us lies in order to make us easy to manipulate. And racism has always divided people and, and, and divided people in order to have more control. Yeah. And so for us, like we want to, we want to start looking at the system. We want to help white people lean into other white people in a way that's, you know, not painful, not blaming, but just supportive. Like let's look at this because we're all going to be stronger. Yeah. Our whole our democratic society actually depends on being able to see racism clearly and undermine it because mm -hmm. racism is tied to fascism. So as long as racism is thriving and racism is deeply embedded in, in the story of America, and as long as it thrives, we are not going to be able to build a healthy democratic society. And so if that's what we want, that's, that's where we need to go. And so I'll, you know, Eleanor and I will be talking about, and I'm like, well, can we say this? I mean, there's this orthodoxy about how people talk about racism and how people mm -hmm. say this and what word should we use for this? And she's like, Allie, the world is ending. Say what you got to say, <laughs> reach out with love, stand in your truth, move forward. And that's the message we want to give to other white mm -hmm. people is like enough already. Stop asking 
am I good enough? Or who am I to say this? Start asking, who am I not to say this? I have a voice. I don't believe in injustice. And like, we're going to get it wrong. We are going to get it wrong. White people are going to get it wrong because we've been socialized in a system that normalizes putting white people at the top of a racial hierarchy. That's messed up when that's the reality. And you think that that's okay. That's messed up. And so we have to unlearn that. And some of our assumptions and some of our feelings are tied up in that. So when Mm -hmm. white people get all defensive about a black person getting into college, for example, Mm -hmm. that is a feeling that comes up because we've been socialized to think I should have more than black people. That is messed up and that's going to get in the way and we need to deal with it when it gets in the way. And we need to keep moving. We can need to keep speaking up. We need to keep listening to people of color and native people. We need to keep saying what it is we're trying to stand for. And we need to take the feedback when we get it wrong. And so we're, we're really like, and, and because of Eleonora being just so bold and willing to just like, you know, challenge some of the orthodoxy around how this happens or take risks and maybe be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying, we're trying to change the way our conversations about racism happen because what we were seeing is that there were so many, there was, there were so many rules. Like white people have all these rules. Don't cry. You know, don't cry about racism and don't, you know, don't, don't contra, like you said, you couldn't contradict the native person in your class because you would be the angry black woman, but everybody else would be the oppressive white person if they contradicted a native person. And so everyone's like following these rules. Yes. And we're trying to say, okay, the rules only get us so far. Yeah. They're not nuanced. How don't cry about racism white people need to cry. Racism is profoundly traumatic, mm-hmm. sad, tragic, it's dehumanizing. We need to cry. Yeah. We don't need to cry. We shouldn't be crying when it, our tears distract from the conversation, shut the conversation down, recenter ourselves. But mm-hmm. I got to find a white person to cry with about this stuff because it's sad. Yeah. And so, so like at every turn, we're trying to change the rules, not change the rules, but say to people like, Tap into your humanity. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, seek the empathetic connection with people of color and Native people by hearing their stories, listening to their truths, seeing how, how, like, how you contribute on some level to their pain, and continuing to like, build that empathetic connection and find your action step from there. Yeah. If I'm contributing to your pain, my first action step is to stop doing that. <laughs> you know, if you're experiencing pain because of some ver- some aspect of the system that's operational in our community or our city, my a- that's where my action step is. Yeah. But when we're in empathetic connection with each other, we can see where we need to take action. This comes back to the title of your book, Our Problem, Our Path. Ugh. You look like you were about to say something, Eleonora. Were you about to say something? To that? No, you're like, <laughs> no, no, I'm just... <laughs> appreciating every word that Ali says. <laughs> I mean, the juiciness that's coming from this conversation is beyond palpable, but you guys are doing hard work. And I, I referenced that before multiple times on purpose because as humans, but also as women who have lots of things going on, because typically, you know, we love our brave men, guys. We always acknowledge you and we know women do a whole, whole lot <laughs> that they don't even speak of. Like we wear a lot of hats in so many ways and wearing all these hats, advocating, being a change agent, being an author, doing your education work, staying 
up on your CEUs, like all the, all the things you have to do before we even get to the personal, it can add up and stack in really heavy ways if we're not careful. So I have to ask each of you individually, how do you give yourself permission to pause? So I um, I am not naturally very resilient, I have to admit. I get really tired and I don't function well. Other people say, oh, I don't function, but then I see them functioning. I really don't function <laughs> like if I don't sleep or if I don't do things that are sort of coming a break. So I had to become good. I am a trauma therapist, and so my work is intense in terms of my daily ins and outs. And um, life is complex and family relationships are complex. And so... There are various ways in which I take what I call mini vacations throughout the day. I can't just wait for Shabbat. I can't just wait for the vacation when I actually leave town. I need to have some breathing room daily. So one of the major ones is I wake up before everybody else. I go to bed very early. I get my sleep. (laughs) But I wake up very early when it's still dark. And I love the dark. I love the night sounds. And I just have my coffee in just peacefulness, whether I meditate, whether I speak to... The energies around me, whether I um, sort of look at my days and sort of figure out how I want to live through it. And sometimes I do a little journaling about things I look forward to and how can I take care of myself throughout the day. So that's pretty much a daily ritual, including weekends sometimes. And as much as I can, I move. Mm -hmm. I need to move my body. So when we do so much emotional work, it's a really physical work. And we don't think of it. We think of it sleeping, but we don't think of the fact that we have to move this energy in our body. So for me, it's very, very important to move. And if I get to move in nature is a big plus. I've become, since COVID, an avid backpacker. And so if I can, uh, when my roommates, as I call them, (laughs) my partner and my daughter, sometimes go visit family in Ohio, they take the car to go to Ohio, I go in the basement, pack my bag and leave for the woods for two or three days. Nice. And that's really phenomenal. Um, and I would say the last thing I do very intentionally is spend time with friends and loved ones. Yeah. That's really key, nurturing and recharging myself. I love I love all the things that you said for so many reasons. And all of them were really good, but I especially like that when your roommates, <laughs> your partner, your daughter, uh, you know, leave to go create some deeper intimacy with family and friends that you create that deeper intimacy with yourself and nature. That's powerful. Yes. Thank you. Ali. I feel so grateful that I work with a lot of really amazing people, mostly cisgender women, but, but, um, that just by, I don't know why that is, um, who every time we have a meeting, we spend the first long time, like half an hour, 45 minutes, talking, processing. Eleanor and I, when we work on the book, we often walk in the woods mm-hmm. together and we talk about the book, but we also have to talk about our lives and we process. And the the person who helps me most kind of organizing all my schedule and invoicing, she and I often will connect, you know, at the beginning of a meeting. So the meetings for me with my, my co-authors and my colleagues are always moments to connect. And that's incredibly important. Um, I find I'm very bad at slowing down. Mm. Um, four years ago, I was diagnosed with MS. And then I would basically had to slow down because I, the way that I, I started to feel stress in my body, like pain. Yeah. And, it, you know, I just, I couldn't keep up the pace anymore. If I didn't have time every day to sleep and exercise, 
then I would become totally dysfunctional. And so um, I found I had to really schedule rest or else I would fill my schedule. And that meant like scheduling a massage or scheduling a walk, even if it was a walk by myself. Um, I had to, I had to insert things into my calendar that were self-care oriented because if I didn't, I would, you know, I would just fill the time or I would sit around thinking I was not doing enough. You know, I think the thing is like, if, if your work is really about educating people about racism it's endless. I mean, there's, there's so much to learn for myself. And then there's so much to teach. There's so many people to teach and it starts to feel like, well, I just have to do as much as I possibly can. And I I think it was humbling to realize I can do, I can like work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there will still be an infinite amount of ignorance and racism in the world. That's real. You know, and so like what I'm going to contribute is going to be finite, no matter whether it's this much or that much. But if it's if I'm if I'm giving my hundred percent and there's no room for for the cup to spill over, then I'm going to just I'm going to like be really stressed out every day. And and in fact, what I contribute is not effective because when I'm super stressed out, then when I make a mistake and somebody offers me feedback on that mistake. I can't hear it. I get defensive. I'm like the opposite of the educator I want to be. And so when I'm able to be more rested and balanced in my, you know, when I show up at, and I, and I limit the number of uh, engagements that I have, um, then I can really work with people and I can show up and be real. And when I make mistakes, I can take in the feedback and hear from them and model the kind of the kind of attitude that I think is required for a white person who's going to be anti-racist. The alternative is that I, that it becomes a business, that it becomes like a, that it becomes a, you know, uh, I don't know, like that I'm like looking only at the bottom line and I'm not looking at the the goal, which is yeah. really, uh, again, supporting people and communities to build empathetic relationships in multiracial settings. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the rest actually is critical to the task that I'm trying to achieve. Mm. I honor you both for that breakdown of what you do for yourself, why you do it. And even recognizing that you struggle sometimes to keep you at the forefront when to keep yourself full, when you have all this other work, because it almost feels like a juxtaposition. Like I got to do all this work, but I need to slow down and fill up so that I can do all this work. Like it feels um, <laughs> like, a, like you're on a seesaw. <laughs> Remember the seesaws that we were on as kids? You know, somebody goes up, somebody goes down. It's like, why can't we both be up at the same time? Um, and, and that's almost like what you're saying to your work and your energy. Like, why can't we both be here versus me needing to come down so that I can get what I need so that I have what I need to effectively go up and be powerful when I'm up, which is truly living fully, right? Like when you're able to optimize yourself and know all those little holes and all those little gaps where energy leaks out and what that looks like for you. So I really do honor you both for the way you differently, uniquely share that. And I know for a thousand percent fact, this is not a made up stat that I just said out loud because it really is, but it isn't that every single human listening to this needed to hear that. They needed to know that they're not the only person as dope and amazing, incredible and brilliant as they are in every way that they show up that they can also recognize like, hey, 
You need to slow down just enough. It could be a little 10 minute mini vacation, like Eleanor said, you know, a couple times a day, 10, 20 minutes, whatever. It could be that I just need to recognize that if I don't schedule it, it's not going to happen because maybe their calendar is technically their Bible. Like I, this is what I need to look at. This is what helps me stay in alignment with where I'm going so that I don't come into, you know, survival mode and start just looking at the numbers versus the greater outcome of the impact that you want to pour out and do before you leave this earth, this realm and transition. So that hunties, Mm, 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 mm. that was powerful. Okay. I can talk to you guys forever. I'm sure you can see that. How can people connect with you and learn more to get the book, to get some of you? Like, where can they go? So the book is Our Problem, Our Path, and it's available at corwin.com, C-O-R-W-I-N.com. That seems to be the most reliable place to get it. If you want to reach me, I'm Allie Michael, and I'm at AllieMichael.org. There's a supermodel named Allie Michael. That is not me. So if you're trying to, if you're having trouble finding me, put Allie Michael race or Allie Michael white, and then you'll, you'll get, you'll get the right Allie Michael and you can reach me through my website. That's awesome. <laughs> and you can reach me through my website, um, eleonorabartoli.com. Just be careful. There's a lot of vowels. <laughs> that first name's got two O's and an A at the end. And so uh, my website has all sorts of information about my private practice, my consulting work. And also I'm on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and uh, Facebook, where I just repost information about the book or just events are coming up. And uh, yeah. I'm easily findable. Wow. Oh, honey. Thank you. Thank you both so much. I am not joking when I say I honor you. I am so grateful that you carved out time, even more time than you planned. So extra, extra thank you for going over in that time because every single syllable of what you had to share was needed. And I know the right humans received it as they listened to this one replay because I know you had to pull out your notebook and write some things down. Thank you. Thank you, Nikita. Thank you so much for having us. Balance Bowley listeners. You know, I, I kind of like sometimes have to stop patting myself on the back every time I'm like, I told you so. I told you I was not playing in 2022 that we were bringing the heat. Every expert is amazing and incredible but we just keep unleashing greater greatness that we didn't even know existed. Before today's show, I had never met these potent humans before. And I can already say, we are going to have lunch. We are going to kick it in Philadelphia somewhere. I have two new friends, like hear me now. That is not a word that I use loosely for any reason. And I am so grateful because I learned something. If you've been listening to the show, you know that I always say the most dangerous and destructive sentence in the world is I already know. So I try my best not to say that, but I can say that I know these women and the work they are doing is beyond necessary. So I ask you two things today as you listen to the show and get ready to save it in your play again file. I need you to share this episode with someone in your ecosystem that you know needs to hear it. Don't share with an explanation. We always over-explain. We get in our feelings. We try to guess at what people's rebuttals are going to be. Don't do that to yourself. Balance boldly by taking a moment and saying, you know what, Jill, John, Jane, Joe, Tina, Tom, and Sonata, 
They all need it. But this one person specifically really needed to hear this and share it. And the second thing I'm going to ask you to do is what I ask you every week is enjoy the balance of your day. But remember, do it boldly.